podcast is part of the Sports Social Podcast Network. This episode of Red Inca, we talk about Aaron Finch, one of the two accidental Australian captains, but I think in many ways the more interesting one. So I got on someone who'd just written a very long piece about Finch recently. My name is Melinda Farrell and I am a cricket journalist currently with Sporting News Australia but also Jared Kimber's former colleague at ESPN Crick Info. Here we talk about how Finch thought his career was gone, his likability, white ball talent, red ball scars and the night he quite literally thought he pissed his career away. Can you talk to me about Aaron Finch's uh, having a wee? <laughs> well, why not start the, this whole thing talking about him peeing because, well, I started the whole story that I wrote about him peeing. You know, it's a funny thing. I'd always remembered in those it's early days. It's a very natural days, thing, Mel, I think you're fine. We all do it. <laughs> Some of us more elegantly than others, I'm sure. But... Uh, <laughs> You know, what are you, what are you measuring how elegant people we know? Uh, I've known you to, to pee off a, a mountainside at the foot of the Himalayas, and I don't know that that was very elegant. But uh, I remembered this story about Aaron Finch uh, way back when, just hearing, you know, he's this young cricketer who'd been kicked out of a, like, not camp, but it was like an Australia A tri-series with India and South Africa, I think it was, and he'd been kicked out and it all sounded like it was all a bit debaucherous, bad, bad boys playing up on tour or whatever, and and he'd been kicked out of the camp along with a couple of other players and uh, Dave Warner was another one of them as well who hadn't really come to the fore. He wasn't an international player. And so it just sort of sounded like it was a bit of a, a lad or whatever. And then when we actually did the interview for this, it was the first time I think he'd ever publicly spoken about what the full story of him and this, we didn't even, I didn't even know it was a we that had got him kicked out. I thought it just, you know, maybe been on the beers or whatever, which he had, but that wasn't why. And so in this whole training camp or this in Australia A camp in, in Brisbane, uh, there are a whole heap of them up there and you know, it was this kind of a, a really big break for him and he hadn't had a drink for eight weeks. He was taking it really seriously. He'd lost weight. He'd been training really hard and uh, he was rooming with Philip Hughes and in the same building apartment that Dave Warner and, and Luke Ronke were roommates in their particular apartment and that was where everyone used to just congregate and, and have a good time. But Aaron Finch had been really disciplined and sort of towards right the end of it, he'd actually gone out and, in his words, you know, he said, I'd had a few. And then he said, actually, I'd had quite a few. So, you know, he was lubricated on the inside. And he had gone for a cigarette because he had smoked in those days. He hasn't for a long time. But basically gone out. He was on the ground floor. He'd gone out to the balcony and just, you know, had a quick whiz. Who amongst just hasn't? I've never had a quick whiz off a balcony, but I'm sure you have. <laughs> Who amongst us have not Mel Farrell's day of shame. <laughs> she tells us about how she wheezes off balcony. <laughs> well, and I think, you know, mitigating fact, it was a ground floor balcony, which I think is important because there's obviously as not a balcony whizzer, I would not normally think about this thing, but if you're whizzing from a height, the whiz can go who knows where. But you know, came back in, didn't think anything of it. And then when the camp finished, it turns out they'd all gone and they'd sort of made a real mess of the room that Luke Ronke and David Warner were in. And the manager of the buildings so made some complaints 
all the players were there and he'd been pretty angry about it. And in the course of this, he'd sort of said, oh, look, someone peed off a balcony. And Aaron Finch was standing with Philip Hughes and he said, oh, mate, that was you. And he's like, oh, yeah, it was too. And he said, look, mate, yeah, sorry, that was me a while ago. And he said the manager was fine. He said, oh, thanks for saying that. And that was kind of it. But then the next thing, the acting CEO of Cricket Australia at the time just basically rang him and said, yep, you're out, along with Dave Warner and Luke Ronke. See ya. And was it Luke Ronke or was it Mark Cosgrove? No, he, he was rooming. Sorry. So we'll get that right. Aaron Finch was rooming with Luke Ronke and with Philip Hughes. So David Warner was kicked out. Aaron Finch was kicked out. Cosgrove was as well, wasn't it? Because it was also, it was the state of the room was the one thing that I remembered. Like Aaron Finch was sort of not directly involved with what the room was like. But no. The, that was the big thing, wasn't it? That there were pizza boxes everywhere, there were beers and yeah, I empty think beers. they'd yeah. spilt stuff everywhere and yeah. the room was in a real state. But Aaron Finch found himself not part of that, but he was actually kicked out for the wee. And, and not only that, he got like an eight-week ban when he went back to Cricket Victoria as well. And he literally thought he'd pissed his career off a balcony and before almost it, it had started. And... He was telling me about it. He said, I thought I was done. You know, young cricketer, hadn't really proved himself in any real form. And he's already been kicked out, banned from his state. So I think he was really taken under the wing of players like Brad Hodge and Andrew McDonald, who who sort of looked after him a bit and tried to help him sort of get so it back on the a track. toilet. <laughs> Try using a toilet. This is how it works. <laughs> how much do you know about Colac? I mean, I don't know much about Colac, but it's always said that he's from Colac, but it's he's actually from, from near Colac. It's, it's a place the same called. Thing. Well, they're very proud. The Irrawarrens don't dismiss the Irrawarrens. They're fighting for independence from Colac every day. If Aaron Finch didn't spend most of his teenage years in the Colac McDonald's, I will go <laughs> here. <laughs> well, yeah, but it, it, it does. It puts it into a bit more perspective. Colac's not big, no? but Irrawarra has got population of fewer than 100 anyway. It is really, really small. And so it was pretty much out in the sticks and I think three acres or something, a nice big place. His father worked at the abattoir, was a butcher. His mum did various sort of administrative jobs. So while he may have spent a lot of time at Colac McDonald's, I do think he considers deep down Irrawarra as home, but it's that sort of thing, isn't it? No one's ever heard of Irrawarra, so it's probably easier to say Colac. And he went to school in Colac as well. But the weird thing is that that whole district is not particularly known for cricketers as a general rule anyway. So there's a lot of footballers that have come out of that area and not just, I'm sort of talking from Colac all the way through to Warrnambool. So there's a bunch of small country towns where people like our friend Bryden Coverdale comes from that no one's ever heard of. And Finchie is from one of those sorts of places. There are country hotspots in Australia, especially in New South Wales, and a few of them in Victoria as well, where a lot of cricketers come from. He comes from mm. somewhere that there was a bit of football, a little bit of golf, but we'd never really had a player from that area in a very no, long time. There's one other yeah, test not player. Yeah, a long time. We have, there was yeah. one test player, one of the, the Invincibles, actually, whose name now escapes me. But there was one. But he did sort of say that Colac was a... It's very much part of, you know, for anyone who's not from Australia and that understanding of that Victorian big AFL kind of area, I think, as well, was a, a really big part. And he did sort of say, you know, he wanted to play footy AFL for Geelong or play for Australia in, in cricket. They were the two sports back there. But it was a really small community that he lived in 
a little bit away from a fairly small town. And so it was quite rural. And he could have probably easily been missed and not made it into the pathway system. He almost didn't because he was actually so good, but they didn't have an under 12s team. So he was playing in, you know, under 14s and under 17s teams. So no one ever thought to put him forward for under 12 representative teams. So he basically almost missed the tryouts because everyone just, you know, forgot that he was that young because he was playing in, in teams with much older boys. And that's a really common thing with country cricketers as well, that quite often there isn't proper junior setups the way that there is in the city. So I, I think that kind of story probably happens a lot and there are probably players who miss the pathway because they're just not identified. There was an article on cricket.com.au a couple of years ago which described him as sort of the most working-class Australian cricket captain, which I found weird because we've actually had a lot of very working-class Australian cricket captains as a general list. But I would say he's almost the most club cricketer Australian cricket captain. Ricky Ponting would have looked out of place in a club environment. Steve Wall would have looked out of place. Alan Border would have looked out of place. If Finchie rocked up to your local club, and not even your first 11, if he rocked up to your second 11, I just don't think anyone would be looking around going, oh, that guy should be here. <laughs> there is something about him. You know, I know he doesn't smoke anymore, but, you know, Tim Payne talking about him smoking on the stump mic. I remember the Surrey boys trying to get every inch of body fat off them and, like, Finchie walking around with a smoke in one hand and beer in the other hand and them just going, well, he's better than us somewhere. <laughs> you know, there's something very relatable about him that I think in Australian cricket, I'm trying to think of the last person that maybe it was early Ricky Ponting, but we haven't had that many very relatable cricketers because over the last 20, 30 years, there have been uber athletes and professionals and marketing brands and all this sort of thing. And that doesn't mean someone like Pat Cummins isn't a lovely person, but I'm not mm. sure that anyone looks at Pat Cummins and goes, I could be like him unless you're a six foot four Adonis who you know, does ridiculous things. You could yeah. be like Finchie. Like it feels like an attainable goal. It does. I actually think he's possibly the most relatable cricketer I've ever met. If I think about it, I'm trying to think of anyone else who's more like that. And maybe that's too why he was such good friends with Philip Hughes, because, you know, they're both country boys, didn't grow up in that kind of city system and had what people might call a bit of a homespun technique that was built on all sorts of things. Like One of the things he said to me was that they had a golf net that was an automatic wiki and they had a lot of room to play cricket. They had a pitch that was like the whacker that would open up with cracks as soon as you had some dry weather. And one of the things he said, you know, if you hit it to square leg, it was in the long grass and you'd spend ages crawling through trying to find the ball. And he said, oh, maybe that's one, you know, one reason that I've never been as strong on the leg side, which I always find fascinating when you talk to, to cricketers about mm. those kinds of things that form them. But you kind of got that impression too when he spoke about driving the hours, you know, his father would drive him, picking him up for school. It was, it was a long trip, it was, you know, probably a four-hour round trip to get to Melbourne and he spoke then about sort of feeling a bit, not out of place, but just looking around and he was saying, you know, the other kids had all the gear. They, they kind of had everything. And his parents earned a modest income. They were by no means rich. And he didn't have all the, the latest gear when he first started playing with a lot of those other really talented cricketers. But he's kind of maintained that. I reckon I probably interviewed him about 10 years ago for the first time. And I don't think he's really changed much since then in the way that he is with people. So he's kind of always been like that. And you see that effect when he does, say, press conferences in other countries. I've had 
journalists in England say so nice going into his press conferences because he's just really upfront and honest. He's very yeah. self-deprecating. He can make jokes at his own expense and just speaks really naturally. And I, I think I said that he, he is the sort of bloke that you can imagine, you know, it's a very, real homebody I think he'd like to be. You can imagine him in a homewares shop or, or seeing him down the pub or at the local cricket club or whatever. He's kind of managed to maintain that, I think, throughout his career, which is actually really impressive. There aren't many cricketers who would describe themselves as five foot nine with short legs and a fat bum, and he has. That's it. He's able to do that in a way, and it makes him, I think, really popular with journalists too when you see it. And that's probably been his charm with fans as well because you're right. It's I think people sort of look at him and, and feel like, if not that they could be him, that he's someone that they could probably be mates with. Mm. There's no aloofness. You get your quirky cricketers that are real nuffies when they speak. He just sort of doesn't come across so much that way either. So um, I think we need to establish a relatable scale. And I think he'd average quite well with an excellent strike rate. I remember doing an article. I think I did one, it must have been before the 2019 World Cup. And weirdly, he's probably the only major Victorian cricketer I don't have kind of any relationship with. I think most of the other guys, one way or another, I bumped into them or, you know, exchanged messages with them or, uh, you know, worked with them in one way or another. And he's not one I have, but I spent a lot of time talking to Brad Hodge and Gareth Batty, who uh, both played with him. And they were both talking about his body. And they said that in some ways he's got a very unathletic body, but not in the way that it kind of looks on TV, if that makes sense. So they were saying that he has, I can't remember if it was Hodgie or, or Batty, but one of them was telling me that he has almost zero body fat, like under his bum, right? But then he has like double the normal body fat that a normal player would have, like above his waist. So when you look at the BMI scales or whatever they do, the fat body, in, he actually comes out fine. <laughs> but again, we talked about Pat Cummins before. Like if Pat Cummins is in one corner of the pub <laughs> and Aaron Finch is in the other, and you say, you know, which one of these guys has played more times for Australia? I mean, you'd be wondering if you even met the, <laughs> if the other guy is like a joke option, whereas Pat Cummins obviously looks like an international athlete. That on its own makes him more relatable, doesn't it? Like there is all that sort of stuff all plays to the sort of his personality backs it up, but it all sort of plays to the way that we think about him. Yeah, but maybe that's something to do with perceptions as well. Like Because when you talk about athleticism and stuff, sometimes I think he's really overlooked as a fielder because he is an excellent fielder. And you look at his ground speed, you know, when he's running, when he's chasing, he's been an outstanding fielder for Australia for a long time. So That'd be the good bum. Well, I was having a conversation with Barrett. Um, Sundaresa and I were talking about bums and, and not in – a bad way, but in the in the way that it gives you a certain amount of strength. He's got the lower body strength, but he's also got the upper body strength. He's sort of, yeah. you know, some players have one or the other and that affects, but he's sort of got both. He's got the base, but he's got the broad shoulders and chest that kind of help him as well. And I think that's probably why he has been one of the most powerful sort of dynamic batters that we've seen certainly in T20 cricket in particular. I think if you look at his body type, it's much more like a baseballer. It's like the sort of baseball sluggers, probably before the steroid era where they got a bit more jacked. But he does have that kind of baseball thing where he's thick, but he's obviously very strong in his core. Mm. And you can see how he can get that power. Just to continue on the relatable side of things. So in the test, is that what it's called? The uh, Australian cricket documentary. Yes. 
He has an interesting period in that because he's not actually in that series very much. I would say he's probably by far the most interesting character, but because of the way that the narrative sort of unfurls, they have to kind of ditch him <laughs> at a certain point and he sort of becomes a background character. But that thing where he's just on the couch talking to his wife about having a shit day at work, again, <laughs> you know, for Death of a Gentleman, we had Eddie Cowan behind the scenes, and I've seen a lot of behind-the-scenes stuff of international athletes over the last couple of years. There are very few times you actually get someone being that honest with a camera in front of them. Uh, yeah, and you almost forget that it's there. He told me Amy, his wife, didn't know that the camera crew was, was sort of coming back, and you know, so she's there in her jammies and all that sort of thing. And he hasn't watched it. He told me he was never going to watch it because he doesn't like watching himself. So I think he was a bit surprised that, because that got mentioned quite a lot, because I think that was one of the sort of standout moments of that whole series, because it is that relatable thing, isn't it? It's like, you know, it just says, ah, just can't score any fucking runs. Am I allowed to say that? But that's a direct quote. But Not on my channel. No yeah. swearing on my channel, Mel. <laughs> it was just in that moment, it was a real peer into the inside, and I think he's the sort of guy, you know, he does sort of feel things quite deeply as well. And I think he's very much a confidence player, you know, when you, you talk about that. And I think at that point in that series, you know, he, he'd lost a lot of confidence in the whole sort of the way the test experiment with him had turned out, which was possibly, you know, really unfortunate and maybe not right. I don't know. But um, I think he is the sort of person who does feel things deeply and uh, when things get to him, he's a bit of a warrior. Like he gets really stressed about being late. He'll show up for things an hour early and sit there in the car because he just really hates being late. I once ran into him and Amy at the airport and we were all waiting in line to get our baggage. It was the day of the IPL auction. So I don't know, it was probably about three or four years ago. And, and he was just really fretting on his phone the whole time. And Anne Amy said to me, you know, he just, he gets really, really nervous about it. And it was amazing seeing him like that, like checking everything. And what I sort of asked him about that, it basically admitted to suffering from FOMO. It was, it was not the idea of, of the money or anything like that. It was, I don't want to miss out on something like that. So yeah, he's got all these really interesting characteristics that are so easy to relate to because I know I get massive FOMO. I never stress about being late. That's not me, obviously. You would know that. But, yeah, that that whole thing, having the crap day, being low on confidence. And so it was really good, I think, that some of that came out in the test because I do think that a lot of people did see that in him and, and were able to relate to him a lot more. I also think, though, that that kind of you know, what we saw in the test and we talk about his body type and the, the beer and smokes thing and, you know, all the, and the country boy thing. I think it's actually in some ways maybe allowed him to be overlooked. He's a, a really, really brilliant tactician and he thinks about the game. I, I know he bats in a very uncomplicated way, but, you know, when you listen to him talk about the game and having talked to past teammates of his, and I can't remember if you mentioned this in your piece, but he's the reason that Sun on the Ryan started opening the batting. Son on Orion was like a proper tail ender in T20 cricket. Son on Orion was teaching himself how to hit sixes because basically he realized that if he could hit a six every six balls or something, he'd be a handy number eight. And Aaron Finch took that idea and made him into an opening batter. And did, I think he used him three times. And it wasn't even like a 
was more of on a whim that he did it. But because of the way that he sort of comes across and the way that he's popularised as the most working-class captain of in Australian uh, cricket history by his own board, I think sometimes he doesn't get the credit that he deserves for the way he thinks about the game. Maybe, too, that whole thing of certain parts of his game being underrated or him not being the, you know, the loudest or the brashest or the look-at-me, the self-deprecation, I sometimes wonder if maybe that had something to do with possibly for the way that his career has unfolded at times. Like, it's still amazing to me that he was dropped as the T20 captain just before the 2016 World Cup. I mean, in the years from 2011 to 2016, he was so far ahead of anyone else in T20 cricket. Like, not just a bit. I mean, he's had the highest average and the, and the next person I think was Glenn Maxwell and he was double Glenn Maxwell as well as having the highest strike rate. And I think the next highest was Chris Gale and he was probably like 10 runs behind him. So between 2011 and 2016, you know, he was the best T20 batter in the world by those sorts of gauges, I guess you could say, or measurements. And then they dropped him just before the... 2016 World Cup, and I know that that was a huge blow for him, like a massive blow. I sometimes wonder, you know, because Australia at the time, Cricket Australia decided in the end, it proved to be the wrong decision, you'd have to say, that they were going to have one captain for all three formats and it was going to be Steve Smith. And then How did that end up? Yeah. <laughs> you know? So Awkward. Yeah, well, it was. And, I mean, he says he has no issue with that now, but it it was clearly a huge blow and I spoke to some other people about it who sort of said that really was a dagger in the heart for him. And it was it was kind of dumb. I think Australia had only played, it says a lot about their, their planning for ICC events. You know, they'd played something like six T20s in the previous two years before that T20 World Cup. So he'd been captain for a couple of years and he'd only played, I think, five of those matches because he was injured and Australia had won three or something. So he hadn't really been given a chance. And then it was like, no, no, Steve Smith's going to do everything, a bit of a sort of golden boy as far as captaincy and and everything else went. So I think that was huge. And so then all of a sudden you have the best T20 batter in the world over a number of years is struggling to keep his place in the side. And, well, also obviously the 2016 T20 World Cup didn't go very well for Australia and you can coulda woulda shoulda all you like you don't know what would have happened if things had gone another way but it was a very strange decision I think at the time and maybe I think now he's appreciated a lot more as a tactician Mm. than he was before and I think that's sort of come with time I don't think it's unfair to say that he was treated a bit shabbily around that whole time. He was in and out of the team quite a lot for someone who is as good as him. I remember, I I think it might have been before the 2019 World Cup, having a look at the percentage of games he'd missed. Now, obviously, sometimes he might have been rested, although not that many times I would have thought. He was injured a little bit, but realistically, he just wasn't a regular player for someone who is quite obviously one of the best white ball players in the world. I don't know if this is from my research or from your article, but it made 13 ODI hundreds, I think. He's made two against South Africa, two against India, two against Pakistan, and six against England. Like, that's ridiculous. You're not supposed to get your hundreds against the best teams. You're supposed to get them against uh, Sri Lanka, who's, you know, got a couple of injuries or something. That sort of shows the otherworldly talent of him. And so I could understand if he would feel that, 
at times he has been let down. I mean, it came through in your piece with him, but he's not the sort of player that would make that a big deal, is he? Like, he probably had internalised that a little yeah. bit. I mean, it would come out on the couch with Amy. I'm not yeah. sure it would come out anywhere else. Well, yeah, I mean, I think friends knew about that, but and he did say publicly how disappointed he was. That was probably one of that. He, He's actually quite an honest sort of person and that goes back to the whole weeing thing as well. He sort of jokingly said to me, I said, well, what did you learn from that kind of thing? He said, yeah, don't be so honest. But he kind of still is and he says things, I think, and sometimes like, yeah, maybe I shouldn't have actually said that in this interview with email. Maybe you shouldn't put that in. I was like, okay, yeah, that's fine. He almost can't help himself. But I think maybe that helped him later on with the whole test thing because he'd sort of been through it before. I think it probably hit him a lot harder when he lost the captaincy than when he got dropped from the test side. I think that was sort of the biggest blow. I think it probably made him more determined as well to just be so good that he couldn't possibly be dropped. But I remember the first time I really watched him and thought, oh, my God, and it was that 150 that he made at the Aegeus Bowl against England where I think he hit, like, 14 six. It was world record number of sixes and he made 156 or something and that was amazing it was the second 47 ball 100 I'd seen the first one was Meg Lanning <laughs> funnily enough but uh, so only Victorians basically is what we're saying Victorians and there was no one there to watch Meg Lanning make her, her 47 ball 100 but which is a shame but um, it definitely I think all that hit him a lot more and I was almost think he was maybe appreciated because he made some of those big scores overseas because he broke that record, didn't he, against Zimbabwe. So he made a lot of mm. those big scores overseas and, you know, then the, the IPL sort of came along. And I think that's why because he made a century in um, that, the opening match against England in the 2015 World Cup. And I remember his celebration with the, like, the leaping and everything. And yeah, that must have meant so much to him because he did it in Australia and he did it at the MCG in Victoria and everything else. So he finally got one of those big scores at home. And sort of from there, I think he was, he was appreciated before, but I think he was appreciated a lot more in Australia sort of from that moment. Having You know what Australia's like? The cricket that happens overseas doesn't always break through, shall we say, move the needle. Yeah, I think if you think about his career, and there's a lot of very good cricketers, I always think of Ryan Harris will not be remembered as good as Ryan Harris is, Mm -hmm. just partly because for a similar reason. There's a lot of cricketers who are just kind of on that. And the problem with being a cricketer from a a country like Australia or India or England is that there is always going to be another cricketer probably coming up in the next couple of years that is going to get the attention. So if you don't sort of get it, that can happen to you. And I think it certainly happened to Finch. I think it happened with the selectors as, as much as with the fans. Talking about the other side of him a little bit, so... When we're talking about how he's a very good tactician and very respected now within the Australian setup as a tactician, I think this is, uh, he keeps a diary of like all of his cricket and in his diary he has like checklists and he has information lists and he has things on the opposition bowlers and everything. It goes back to what you were saying before about that there's that sort of thought about him being the jocular everyman, but it's actually like there's a lot of work that goes into Aaron Finch being Aaron Finch. It's not an accident that he's this good. Yeah, I don't think it is an accident. And when you look at sort of how the T20 captaincy went and, you know, came and then it went just before the 2016 T20 World Cup, and then you even look at, at the most recent World Cup, the 2019 World Cup in England. So, again, it sort of shows that, Australia and ICC World Cups and, and what sometimes happens is because all the whole debacle with Newlands and Sandpaper Gate and then Tim Payne 
was the ODI captain and they had that 5-0 loss in England in the previous year. He was clearly not the man for that job. So then Aaron Finch is brought in sort of eight months before the World Cup with Australia still sort of reeling in some ways from everything that's happened and, you know, when will Smith and Warner come back and there was all this before that World Cup. You just did not know who the team was because you had Warner and Smith coming back and people didn't know necessarily how good they were going to be. You had various other players, you know, Sean Marshall and Kawaja, who's in the batting lineup for Australia. So in a way, like well, when he had conversely having the T20 World Cup taken away from him after he'd been in the job for a couple of years, he had the one-day job given to him without that much time to put into place his team in a kind of a real schmozzle time for the Australian side. And I think that side of him you talk about with the diarising and the meticulous planning and everything is something that he probably didn't sort of get the chance to show at ICC events in white ball cricket, which is obviously his forte and where he's best tactically. So I hope for him that having this lead up now and assuming that he will be captain for the next T20 World Cup, which can't bank on anything, but I know certainly he plans to. And if wants, we have one. If we have one. <laughs> We don't know where this is going to be yet. And even with the next ODI World Cup, and I know he does want to go on to that, and that would probably be his swan song if he did make it to that, I think. But at least now, I know he's already planning now. He's been planning sort of for the past year for both those events, just sort of the long-term planning and what they do and compositions of squads and, and how you actually put a squad together. So I think if he's at those next two ICC events, it will be much more of an Aaron Finch team going, you know, when you talk about a team being Tim Payne's Australia now or whatever. But if he's given the chance, hopefully it would then be, you know, an Aaron Finch team and he will finally have that opportunity to actually have a whole tournament played the way he wants to and a squad put together the way he wants to and those tactics and all of those notes that he's been making for a long time really come to fruition. So you can always see Cricket Australia deciding six months before the next thing, oh, no, we're going to go with someone else. And I I hope that doesn't happen. I I hope he gets the opportunity to actually do that and really showcase that at at one of those big tournaments. Just finally, I remember Brad Hodge telling me on his captaincy, he said, People trust him because he's a really good player. So people are like, well, he's a really good player. But because of his career and the ups and downs and the pissing off the balcony and having trouble with his weight at times and being dropped when he shouldn't be dropped and failing in test cricket, Hodge said to me that he's very good at dealing with the superstar players and also dealing with the sort of bottom of the pile fringe players. He has this incredible empathy and sympathy for other people and he's a very social person. It's interesting because... I'm not sure that any of those things came into why he ended up being Australian captain, <laughs> that he just happens to be that person. He ha- At a certain point, he just happens to be the person who is most likely to be in the team, and so he was given the captaincy. And yet there's a lot when you talk about his tactics, when you talk about his preparation, when you talk about his personality, that actually just brilliantly fit captaincy. And it almost makes me think that all of this has happened by accident. And if you were working for a cricket team right now, you'd be looking at what has happened with Aaron Finch and be like, how do we replicate this or how do we train our players to understand the sorts of things that Aaron Finch has? He probably want to get into coaching, but even if he didn't want to get into coaching, it'd be really interesting to see what he does with leadership and with management going forward. Yeah, so two things that come to mind when you say that. 
One is actually quite current. One of the things he said to me was, particularly when he became the T20 captain of Australia, he really learned about that there were two separate things to captaincy and leadership. They're actually two really different kind of skill sets that you need to have. And you can be a good cricket captain, but not necessarily be a good leader. Like you want to try and be both. So that that was something that I thought was really interesting because he also said sometimes like he thinks that probably the best person to be captain is not necessarily the person who wants to be captain. And funnily enough, that's exactly what Tim Payne said when he spoke at the Chapel Foundation dinner recently and he was being asked about, you know, would he back Steve Smith if he came back to the captaincy and say, and he said he would. But he, he didn't make that comment that along the same lines. It's often the, it's about being the best player and the best leader and then the captaincy sort of might come your way rather than coveting it and pushing for it. So I thought that was really interesting that Tim Payne said, exactly the same thing that Aaron Finch. So you have two captains there who both kind of probably wouldn't have been expecting to be captain of Australia and have actually turned out to do a a good job in difficult circumstances. And the other thing that you were saying about that, that leadership and and what he can do to players on the fringe, uh, I mean, I think he has learned a lot from being in the test side is I know he felt that there were just too many voices in his head, too much advice almost, you know, the Australian team's gone through a phase where they've had lots of, you know, legends come in and mm. and everything. And I think that while that's useful, sometimes when you've got all the coaching staff, but then you've got all the other people coming in as well. And all of a sudden he was then trying to turn himself into a test opener rather than just being the best batter that he could do and doing what worked for him. And it wasn't a blame thing. I don't think he was trying to blame anyone at all. I just think he realised that looking back that it was too muddying to have all these voices. So I think he would actually be a really good person to have around younger players coming into a side because he would be able to recognise that, I think, and maybe be able to guide players coming in to not be overwhelmed by some of the noise that can happen, especially around like a a big high-pressure series. Thank you very much for coming on the podcast. Oh, thank you so much for having me, Jared. It's always a pleasure. Thanks for listening to Red Inca. There is more information on my guests available in the show notes, including their Twitter profiles, if they have one. This is the important bit, though. Please review on Apple Podcasts or anywhere, really. Share it on all the social medias and just get it out there. If you can, act it out in plays on your balcony with your loved ones. This podcast is made possible by the people who support us at Patreon, so thanks to those who already do. And there is a link to Patreon in the show notes as well. Red Inca is made by me, Jared Kimber. Nick McCorriston makes everything sound better for your ears and the theme tune is called The Prisoner by the Red Crickets.